One of the privileges of doing the job that Rich and I do is uh, baptizing people. Um, on occasion, sadly, we have to bury people. Some of them are dead. Um, uh, but also, we're invited to take part in weddings. It was my great joy some, how many years ago now, to marry Steve? Uh, who? Four years, just checking. He looked unsure as to how long he'd been married then. Uh, but it was great to be able to, to marry you two. Um, and last weekend, I wasn't here. I was doing a, a wedding up in Aberdeenshire. Uh, it was a lovely occasion. Um, there the happy couple are, um, Jenny and Tom. Uh, Jenny had grown up in this church, um, uh, daughter of Robert and Joyce, who are here this morning. And it was a, an amazing occasion. Um, all the way through the morning, it rained uh, with 15 minutes to go before the service. The skies parted, the sky was blue, and the sun came out. They must have friends in very high places. Um, and it was a stunning location. It was held at Fask House in Aberdeenshire. Uh, that's a small you know, country cottage that it was held in. And uh, it was great occasion, lovely food, great people, and just lovely and a real privilege to be a part of it. Um, I had no complaints about the seating plan. Um, uh, if you remember a few months ago, I, I mentioned that seating plans for weddings, sometimes for clergy, they can cause real difficulties uh, because what tends to happen is that people think, well, he's the vicar, he won't mind. So we either get put um, with the, the, the real pagans of the family who aren't Christians in the hope that over the meal we'll convert them, um, or we're put with the nutters. Um, now, this time, I have no complaints, Robert and Joyce, about where you put me. Um, you sat me next to my wife, so I cannot complain um, of, of the, uh, the, the seating arrangements or indeed the food. It was great. Um, but it reminded me of a story that had been in the news two or three weeks before. And uh, it was a story that came uh, from America. And uh, the bride, on October the 17th, called Quinn Duane, only with a name like that could they be in America. She was due to marry her fiancé, Landon Boop. <laughs> Real names, not made up. Quinn Dane was due to marry Landon Boop. But five days before the wedding, on October the 12th, Landon got cold feet and pulled out of the wedding. Now, the bride was devastated. The family, though, were even more devastated because the wedding was booked, the reception was booked at a hotel, and it was unrefundable, and it had cost them $35,000. Robert, $35,000, £22,000. It actually included a two-week honeymoon as part of the package. So the family were faced with having spent $35,000 with a meal and a hotel that was booked, they couldn't get their money back, what were they going to do? So they came up with a brainwave of an idea. And they went out onto the streets and they invited people who are homeless, people who were struggling, people that they knew were struggling with, with money, and they invited them to share the meal with them. And so 120 homeless people joined with the bride's father and mother. The bride was too upset to go, but the bride's father and mother were there to welcome all these guests into their bride's, their daughter's wedding reception that was no longer their daughter's wedding reception. Just an amazing thing to do. And so two weeks ago on October the 17th, that took place in Sacramento, California. A hundred homeless and struggling people sat down with the bride's parents to eat salmon, steak, and gnocchi. 
And it reminded me of, of a similar story that occurred 15 years ago in downtown Chicago, where again a, a groom pulled out of the wedding four or five days before the ceremony. And the bride's family made the same decision to invite homeless people from downtown Chicago into the hotel and to share the meal with them. But on that occasion, there was one particular detail that was missing in the one from two weeks ago. The mother-in-law of the bride, or the mother of the bride, um, in honor, she said, of her spineless son-in-law-to-be required all the chickens to be deboned um, as a sign of her spineless son-in-law. Uh, and as they ate the chickens and had no bones at all, they were reminded of the guy who'd, who'd wimped out of the wedding. Now, those two stories, true stories, are great pictures of the story that we find in Matthew 22 that Di read for us a few moments ago, a wedding reception that ends up with very different guests to those who had originally been invited. Now, the context of this story, if you remember, is the last week of the life of Jesus. He's been encountering the hostility and rejection of the Jewish capital, and in particular of the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and the high priests of the temple in Jerusalem. He's come right to the heart of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, God's Messiah in God's city at the temple, the center, the Jews believed, of God's activity here on earth, and God's Messiah, God's chosen one, is rejected. He's already told two or three stories to the religious authorities, the parable of the two sons, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the parable of the tenants we looked at last week. And now, here in Jerusalem, in Passover week, Jesus tells us another pointed story. So if you've got your Bibles open or if you've got your smartphone still on that app, uh, turn to Matthew 22 and verses 1 to 14. Because this story involves a wedding reception where people refuse to come and where, intriguingly, one of the guests who does turn up gets kicked out. Did you notice that in the story? It's a fascinating detail that we'll come on to later. But the story splits effectively into three parts. The first seven verses, verse 1 to 7, are about the invitation going out and the invitation being refused. And then in verses 8 to 10, there are the good consequences when the, the invitation is thrown out wider. And then the final bit is this guest who gets kicked out. But firstly, let's look at verses 1 to 7. If you like, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus speaks to them, we're told, in verse 1. He spoke to them again in parables. Who are the them that are being referred to? They're the religious elite and establishment, the professional clergy, the moderators and the bishops, the reverends and the canons, people like Rich, people like me that are being talked to. That's who Jesus is addressing. And he uses a picture that they would have been very, very familiar with. He uses this picture of a wedding banquet, a great feast, a great wedding banquet. That picture, as a metaphor of the kingdom of God, had been around for about 700 years by the time Jesus was speaking. In Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah wrote of the vision that he'd been given by God of a great feast at the end of history. He wrote these words. 
On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. He will wipe away the tears from all faces. It's a picture that's picked up in the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, where again, an amazing wedding reception, wedding banquet, wedding feast is pictured where Jesus returns and where people from every nation and tribe and tongue are gathered together and where God comes and we're told will wipe away every tear from every eye. It's a cosmic love story. The king of heaven inviting people to the best wedding reception ever. And the ears of the clergy listening to this story would have, would have picked up. Because everybody knew that actually the people that Jesus was speaking to most were the clergy, were the Pharisees, were the Sadducees, were the teachers of the law, were the high priests of the temple. Nobody would be in any doubt as to who Jesus was talking to. This was about them. This was about us. And yet, amazingly, the story that Jesus tells is one where, despite being invited by the king to the wedding of his son, the invitation is declined, not once, but twice. First of all, there's a sort of verse 3. There's a sort of keep this date invitation that goes out. The king sends the servants out, and they're told to tell people, keep this date, tell them to come. But they refuse to come. There's a second invitation in verse 4. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. You see, he sent servants out to tell people when the feast was ready. Nobody walked around with a a watch or a calendar or an iPhone. They didn't have dates just at their disposal. They didn't have a, a, a diary to tell them. They didn't have newspapers to read. So they had to send servants out to tell people the feast is ready. You've kept the date. Now come and eat. I've killed the ox. I've killed the cattle. It's been cooked. The meal's ready, now come. But again, they refuse the invitation. And what's striking is that this is the equivalent of turning down an invitation to Kate and Will's service. It's as though you were sent an invitation to Kate and Will's wedding service and reception at Buckingham Palace. And you just say, nah, can't be bothered. I'm going to decline the invitation. And in fact, you don't, you're not going to even RSVP to the Lord Chamberlain. You just ignore the invitation. You just forget it. You just ignore it completely. You decline an invitation to a royal wedding and a royal wedding reception. But amazingly, as I say, they refuse the invitation. And in f- refusing the invitation, they are basically snubbing, they're insulting, they're dishonoring the king. Now remember, this is a Middle Eastern culture where even today, honor is incredibly important. So dishonoring the king was very, very significant. And there were consequences to it. Because what happens is that their indifference actually leads to something worse. 
It leads to hostility, and then it leads to violence. They end up killing the servants who've invited them to the feast. We're told, verse 7, the king gets angry. He sends his army and destroys those murderers and burnt their city. Now, maybe at this point, sort of alarm bells are starting to ring. This isn't the story that you've heard before, perhaps. It isn't a story that you remember. You're familiar with the story of a wedding feast where everybody is invited, where God is friendly, where God is nice, where God is fluffy. This isn't a God who is fluffy. This isn't a God to be trifled with. This is a God where there are consequences if we refuse God's invitation. This is a God who is just. This is a God who is angry. This is a God where there are consequences. Yet that is the God that Jesus describes. If we refuse God's invitation, then there are consequences. And the religious leaders that Jesus was speaking to knew that he was speaking to them. In rejecting Jesus, in refusing to recognize who Jesus was, in declining his invitation to the kingdom... Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, to the high priest, to the Sadducees, and to people like you and me, there are consequences. Up to now, Galilee has refused to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Now it's Jerusalem's turn to refuse to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Amazingly, a third invitation would come on the day of Pentecost. After the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, there would be a third invitation given to the people of Israel. But despite 3,000 people on that day accepting, the vast majority would refuse the invitation. So there are consequences. But there are also, secondly, verses 8 to 10, good consequences. There are good side effects in this story as well. The servants that survive are sent out again, presumably slightly reluctantly and slightly nervously. Uh, their colleagues were sent out and never came back. In fact, they were all killed. So this isn't a job that you volunteer for, going, oh, please send me out to give out the invitations. But the king this time sends them out and says, go out onto the highways and byways. Go out and find anybody, basically anybody with a pulse. Just go out anywhere, any of the street corners. Get the bad, get the bored, good, get the indifferent, and, and force them to come and, and tell them that anybody can come to this wedding feast. I want my son to have guests at his wedding reception, and I don't care who it is. Just get them and compel them to come in. And that's what happens. Word is sent out, and here we have this all-inclusive, all-welcoming meal. This is the picture that, if we're honest, we prefer to dwell on. Not the picture of God taking judgment on people, and of people living with the consequences of their refusal of God's invitation, but of the all-inclusive, all-welcoming picture of the banquet, where everybody is welcome, where everybody is included. It's a picture that we see played out every Saturday in this church building where at Soul Food we invite anybody and everybody to come and have a meal. It's a picture that's played out every Sunday where we invite anybody and everybody to come and receive the bread and the wine. It's a picture that's played out every Thursday at 
babies and toddlers, where irrespective of age and background, we invite anybody and everybody to come and get a breadstick and some juice. Everybody is welcome in the kingdom of God. Everybody is accepted. Unconditional acceptance. Irrespective of age or background or ethnicity or sexuality or gender or race or class or income or no income or status, everybody is welcome in the kingdom of God. Now, if we're honest, that's the picture that we prefer. And it is a beautiful picture picture. But at various times in the church's history and at various times in Jewish history, that picture has been lost. At the time when Jesus was around, a sort of corruption of Isaiah's vision had arisen in what was called the Qumran community. It was a very sort of dedicated, um, spiritually elite community. It's where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from. And in this version called the Messianic Rule, A way of thinking had come into people's thinking where only pious Jews, only good Jews, could attend the feast, the wedding banquet of the Messiah. And there it said, I quote, nobody could attend who was smitten in flesh, paralyzed in feet or hands, lame, blind, or deaf, or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. Basically, anybody from Glasgow. Um, All those people, and if you're from Glasgow, it's anybody from Edinburgh. Okay, let's just, you know, we'll square it out. It's anybody who's not like us. And what they did was they drew demarcation lines around who was good enough to get into the wedding feast. Now, Jesus made a priority of spending time with people who were the exact opposite of that messianic rule. He made a priority of spending time with the tax collectors and prostitutes, with the blind, with the lame, with the deaf, with the forgotten, with the riffraff, with the nobodies, with the forgotten. And when God's church is being the church, it will always make a priority of those people. People that the rest of society forgets, people that the rest of society discounts, When God's church is being God's church, it will always make a priority of those people. But then we come thirdly and finally to the guest who is kicked out, verses 11 to 14. If you know anything of the New Testament, you may remember that there's a very similar story to this story found in Luke's gospel. But there are some significant differences. In the version found in Luke's gospel, It concerns a certain man, not a king. It's referred to as a great supper, not a wedding banquet. It's the guests who are invited give reasonable excuses rather than resorting to violence. So if you remember, one person says, well, I bought a field and I've got to go and look at it. Uh, Somebody else says, "Um, well, I've bought an ox. I've got to go and test drive it. Uh, Somebody else says, I've just got married, so I can't come. Um, But they give what are required to be reasonable excuses. They don't resort to violence, and neither are they destroyed. But in the story in Luke's gospel, it doesn't have this detail about the guest who gets kicked out. Now, 
James Green, who's preaching tonight, and I have, have read all the commentaries this week, and we've had a few conversations about what is going on with this guest. There are all sorts of different theories uh, put forward in the commentaries as to what is going on with this guest who gets kicked out of the wedding reception. And it seems at first glance to go right against this all-inclusive, all-welcoming, all-embracing picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb. So what is going on? The king arrives, sees the guest still dressed in his own clothes. And the king asks him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? Now, there seems to be some inference that everybody else who's been invited to the feast, they've been given wedding clothes by the king. As they've arrived at the palace for the, the wedding reception, uh, they've been given a set of clothes. This guy somehow has got in without a new set of clothes. He's just wearing his own clothes. But what may be significant is that when the king asks him, and the king calls him friend, he refuses to answer. He's speechless. He, he can't give an excuse. It's a strange twist that has lots of people perplexed and confused, but maybe the answer is quite simple. As I've thought about it this week, there was a, an incident that happened earlier this year that suddenly came into my mind that seemed to make sense of what is happening with this man. I think this man is trying to do a Lewis Hamilton. Do you remember Lewis Hamilton? Singles final day at Wimbledon this year. And Lewis Hamilton was invited to sit in the royal box. And Lewis Hamilton arrived dressed like that. Flowery shirt, cool shades, stupid hat. And he rocks up and expects to sit in the royal box. And horror of horrors, Lewis Hamilton, Formula One world champion, was denied access to the royal box. And the papers were full of, this is disgraceful. This is, well, some papers said, this is disgraceful that he should turn up like this. And other papers were, this is disgraceful, he should have been let in. Shows how fusty and fuddy-duddy Wimbledon is. But I think what was happening with Lewis Hamilton was what was happening with this guy. You see, Lewis Hamilton was under no illusions as to what the dress code was for the royal box. He would have been sent a letter. He would have been sent instructions. He would have been told that you would not be allowed in the royal box, particularly on singles day, finals day, at Wimbledon, without wearing a jacket and without wearing a tie. Now, you may think it is a stupid rule, but them's the rules. Lewis Hamilton thought that he could just turn up because he is Lewis Hamilton. And he could rock up like that. And Wimbledon wasn't going to exclude him. Wimbledon was going to accept him because he is Lewis Hamilton and he can turn up however he likes. That is exactly the same as what is happening here. This wedding guest has probably been offered special wedding clothes. But what's happened is that he's refused them. And he sat in his own clothes because, thank you very much, he can dictate the terms upon which he can enter the presence of the king. 
He thinks that he is the one who can decide what he can wear to the wedding reception of the king's son. And that's why he gets thrown out. You see, he doesn't realize the change that is required in order to be at a wedding reception. He thinks he can stay exactly as he is, or that he is refusing to change in order to be at the wedding reception. He's refusing the terms that the king lays down. Now, what is Jesus saying with this strange part of the story? I think, I think he's saying, in order to be a follower of mine, you can't stay as you are. In order to be a follower of mine, you need to enter on my terms, not yours. And if you become a follower of mine, if you accept the invitation to the wedding reception of the king's son, people should know. People should know that you're different. The Apostle Paul put it slightly differently in Colossians chapter 3. He wrote, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In other words, if you're going to a wedding, other people should see that you are a wedding guest. If you're going to a wedding other people should see that you are a wedding guest. So last weekend, I put on special clothes. I put on a new tie, a new shirt that I bought specially for the occasion. I put on my kilt, and I conducted the wedding service. Everybody else at that wedding had put on, had bought special clothes. We had to go out and buy special clothes for Kathy, even though she already had special clothes for a wedding. We had to go and buy special clothes. This is what Jesus is saying. If you are going to the wedding, if you have, re re have, you have accepted the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb, people should tell that you and I are wedding guests. Not by the clothes that we wear on the outside, but what we clothe ourselves with on the inside. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, humility, love. People should tell by the way in which we live our lives that we are wedding guests. It doesn't mean that in order to get in to the wedding reception, you have to be good, be nice, be kind, be gentle. Any of us only are invited to the wedding reception, only are, are accepted into the kingdom because of the king's terms, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because Jesus died, because Jesus was raised, because Jesus is coming again. That's the basis upon which we enter into the kingdom of God. That's the basis upon which we accept the invitation. But once we've accepted the invitation, people should spot the difference. It's one of the reasons why at baptism in the early church, it's great to baptize Abigail, but in the early church, when they baptized children and adults, um, 
they would be given a new set of clothes after the baptism. So this evening, we're baptizing Louise, uh, and we're, we're, this uh, baptistry here is going to be, um, it's emptied of toys, and it's going to be full of water. And in the early church, what would have happened is that as Louise uh, is baptized and comes out of the water and goes to get changed, what would have happened is that she would have been bought a new set of clothes so that when she comes back into the service this evening, having been baptized, she is wearing new clothes. She was at the nine o'clock service, and I, I said this, and uh, she was with her, 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 her mum, and she kept on jabbing her mum, saying, you've got to buy me new clothes today. We've got to go out and buy new clothes. Because you'd only get a, Christ, you don't get a Christian name, but you get new clothes. Because you have a new identity. The old person has been buried in the waters of baptism, and now you're raised with Christ. You are a new person. You've got a new name. You've got a new identity, and you were given new clothes. So maybe you should buy Abigail now a new set of clothes, not before the baptism, but after the baptism. Maybe Sally, you should get a new set of clothes as well. Steve, maybe you should get a new set of clothes as well. But that's the symbolism of baptism, a new identity, a new set of clothes. So what about us to finish with? We aren't living in first century Jerusalem. We're in 21st century Edinburgh. Not many of us are religious professionals apart from Rich and myself, but we're still faced with the same challenges. What does this passage have to say to you and to me this morning? Well, the first thing, very simply, is are we still inviting people? Are we still inviting people? The New Testament says that now Christ makes his appeal through us. We are the servants who are sent out to invite other people to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the question is, are you, am I, still inviting people? I'm still haunted by that statistic that I spoke about three or four weeks ago, that 67% of the population of the UK know a practicing Christian, 58% of them have had a conversation with them about Jesus, but only 16% of the population felt sad after that conversation that they weren't a Christian. 42% actually felt relieved after the conversation that they weren't a Christian. If you saw the front of the Times newspaper yesterday, you'll see it appeared on the front page where it said, um, Anglican Church told to stop talking with their friends about Jesus because you're making it worse. It's an interesting interpretation of the statistics. But when was the last time that you, when was the last time that I, had a conversation with somebody about our Christian faith that left them feeling sad that they had not accepted the invitation, that they didn't share the faith that you and I have? Next year is perhaps going to be the biggest ever year for Alpha in the world. There's going to be a huge campaign there's a new set of, of talks being filmed at the moment. Uh, Bear Grylls is going to head up a, a, a multinational worldwide campaign inviting people on the Alpha course. It's going to be the biggest Alpha profile ever in the last 20 years. You may notice that we haven't really pushed Alpha this autumn. There is a course that's happening. That course is happening because two or three people came to us and said, we would like to do Alpha. That course that's very small is happening in the way that it's happening because we'd actually decided not to run Alpha this autumn 
because we wanted to create a question in your mind as a church. And the question we wanted to put in your mind is, why aren't we running Alpha? Do you know in the past two months, only two people have asked me, why aren't we running Alpha? Everybody else just, We aren't running Alpha because last year, the courses that we ran were so small that we wanted to take a step back and reevaluate how we're doing as a church. So my challenge for you, and my challenge for me as well, is how might we get better at inviting our friends? To invite them into the kingdom, to invite them to that wedding feast of the Lamb. Who are we going to invite to the carol service? Who are we going to invite in the next year so that when that big push comes next autumn, we've got friends who aren't Christians that we've had a conversation with after which they feel sad that they don't share the faith that we have. Second point is, do we restrict the invitation to people like us? Have we become like the Pharisees or the high priests or the Jewish nation who'd begun to think that you had to be good, nice, religious in order to be invited? Or are we still willing to throw out that all-embracing, unconditional, welcoming invitation that all are welcome in the kingdom of God? And thirdly and finally, and very simply, is the way that we live our life revealing that we are wedding guests? Do people notice that we belong to the king because our lives reflect the kingdom? As people look at your life and my life, do they see kindness, gentleness, patience, humility, love? Or do they see something else? In essence, do our lives show that we are wedding guests? That we are on our way to the wedding feast of the Lamb? Can other people tell that you are on your way to a wedding? Rich.